0: okay peace family we're back once again with another exclusive guest and this is one i'm definitely proud to have on the platform um tobin custom aka tc born in fort hood texas spent at least 13 years in germany it says as an army brat on his own website so we're, we're going we'll we're get into that in a bit this man is a creative genius in his own right a marketing genius has a bachelor's degree in communications and marketing um so you know no freeze work with No Limit Records. No freeze work with Little Troy and other people in the music business, King Troy and stuff. Um, King George, I should say. Tobin, what's good, brother?
1: Hey, how are you doing, Fonzie? So good to be, uh, be on the show. Thank you very much for taking the time. It's fabulous, man. I appreciate you.
0: Yeah, no, I appreciate it. Like I was saying in the introduction, um, I'm definitely honored to be having this conversation with you because I respect the work that you've done in the music business. the the part that you played within No Limit Records, which has spawned like a huge following around the world, which has spawned a huge legacy. And um, a lot of that's attributed to Pierre. We understand his, his part to playing it and stuff, but we know it takes a lot of people. Uh, you was around at an instrumental time and stuff as well. So it's glad to see you even getting celebrated within the legacy and stuff, too.
1: Oh, thank you. I mean, you know, a lot of people have reached out. It's It's been great that uh, people have. Kind of recognize me and the things that I've done in the in- industry, and you know, when you get folks that reach out and say, "Hey, you know, what you've done in this industry is special and different," it, it definitely feels good, and I am so thankful for for everyone's love and support, and I'm humbled by it as well.
0: So we say you, you know, you initially um, came from Texas, then and before you made your way to Germany, what at what age did that transition happen, um, and how do you? How long was you in Texas for?
1: so i went back and forth to texas from the time i was born i moved back and forth between texas and europe and and all over but uh i was in texas probably about four years some of that was like middle school or junior high as some people say up until the beginning of high school and then i moved back to germany and then i wanted to finish in high school over in germany before i went back to the united states to start college so it was definitely back and forth um i would say my 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 mother's from New York and my father's from Washington D.C. So we got a we're an East Coast kind of family, but my roots were in Texas because many of my friends and the time that I spent in Texas, I kind of developed a love and respect for it because obviously I was born there and I lived there for some time, and then also the fact that I spent a lot of time there doing my music business days, uh, you know, with with Master P as well as with King George and Little Troy, so I got a chance to spend a lot of time in Texas and 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 do some great things there. So I, I, I consider that probably more of my 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 third home after California and Germany, I would probably say Texas would be a third or fourth home. Also, I consider Washington somewhat of a home of mine as well, state okay. that. Is.
0: So a matter of the world, we, we definitely know that. And um, so speaking about being out in Europe, and um, especially Germany, when you was out there at that time studying, working, you know, um, was you listening to me what music was you listening to were you listening back to a lot of stuff from the states
1: i was i was listening to a lot of stuff from the states I, I i you know i was a huge fan of a group called utfo they did the roxanne roxanne record and uh you know doc ice educated rapper Kango kid uh i was a huge fan of their those guys i was a fan of the fat boys uh huge fan of them uh fan of run dmc and houdini a lot of those groups in the 80s i was i was in love with um i i think you know i, I did listen to some some edm music for my time being in germany so a little bit of that but mainly i was into hip-hop like crazy uh 1989 a uh, friend of mine uh, who i, who I live with uh, in the area with uh, germany named Lamont jack turned me on to gangster rap because he turned me on to NWA and he turned me on to Ice Cube. And that's when I started really kind of changing my mindset of all kinds of music, um, not only just the the, the the East Coast sound, but also some of that West Coast sound and some of that gritty sound and gangster rap itself. And that's what, that's what I was always excited about, the different genres within rap music and within hip hop, because sometimes people they think there's hip hop is just one thing but no there's different different type of genres within the genre itself and i just i just i fell in love with that west coast sound and the organ sound and the way the beats were put together so um huge fan of 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 all of hip hop but definitely got once once nwa came out I, I became a real fan of that 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 vision of talking about what's going on in the streets and the storytelling aspect
0: of hip hop yeah, no, I love that, and um, I could definitely attest to what you're saying about just the the different elements that hip hop's been known to be able to include. whereas some people think that hip hop is just a standalone genre itself, but it being able to take music from whether it's rock, blues, jazz, um, you know, with vocals, without the vocals, however which way it goes, and um, that's something that definitely drew me to the music and to the culture and stuff like that as well myself. So um, it's great to hear somebody like yourself speak of it because. You know, there's a lot of people in the business that work in the business, but they may not necessarily have that same feeling for music. So it's good to hear that you like a music kind of series your own right. So you know, sort of going from that was was point when you heard like that sort of stuff. Did you know you you wanted to work within the music business then, or was this something that you know um you you, you heard it and you thought you know I need to I want to be a part of this um you know, this was going on, or was you already making strides to in that sort of direction?
1: Well, I was always making music. So, uh, you know, I I will tell you, when I first heard people ask me this question, when did you really fall in love with hip hop? And I would say when I heard Sucka MCs by Run DMC, I was in New York City for a summer. Um, My grandmother lived there. And I stayed there for the whole summer, and I heard suck MCs probably every five minutes on on every radio station, on every box uh, that I could, any, anything that had music, I was listening to suck MCs. And I and when I heard Run talk talk through that record and the way that beat was going, and he was talking about Larry Lair and I was like, man, I wanted to be a part of that. I wanted to, to, I didn't care if I was dancing or rapping. I just wanted to be a part of it, and I, I totally fell in love with it. So by the time I was older, like my high school years in Germany, I was always rapping and, and making beats and writing songs. And and I had a, a buddy of mine early on in my time, with the earlier years in high school, named Randy Fusco, who was probably the best beatboxer I've ever heard. So we would do radio commercials and we would we would perform and it didn't matter if we were on the bus to a football game or a basketball game or we were we were just hanging out we were always making music and 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 he was beatboxing and i was rapping and we were doing these commercials so it was always cool and then as i moved to different places in germany when i when i finished my high school career at Würzburg, i hooked up with a friend of mine uh, named soul elements who's still in uh, Germany and performing and he's got a really really good name and doing some things and I used to continue to make beats and rap and make music so I was determined to be in the music business the entertainment business but mainly I wanted to be in hip-hop and ultimately I wanted to be a rapper and a producer okay. and it wasn't until later on in my career when I was trying to, 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 to really focus on being a rapper being in front of the mic or in front of this on stage is when I realized from a compensation standpoint, the business executive and the producer has an opportunity to make more income than the rappers. So when I was, you know, on the, on the radio up in Spokane, Washington at KGU with uh, my man, Graham Mixer GMS, I was always wanting to be rapping and he was making music and I was making music and I was rapping and we had a group and we were doing all these things. It just, it happened to be when I started to talk to these record executives and I realized that the rappers were only getting six to eight to 12% on the record. And I said, well, man, why do I want to be the rapper? I want to be the guy who runs the record label or owns the record label who makes the, the bigger percentage. So that's when I went from the transition of wanting to be an artist into being a producer and being a business detective.
0: And a business man in your own right. Yeah, definitely. And you know, that's actually interesting because I didn't know I mean I could like I said, I can tell you you're creative and stuff, but um so it doesn't surprise me you that you've had the um experiences with being a rapper and stuff as well. And we've had a few um little stuff that you've done on rap records, but we'll get into that a bit later. <laughs> okay, um, right. I wanna sort of segue from that because um into you going back was this in california it says you had a job at a uh, publishing company um working as a distributor so you know yeah. you're back in the states now and you find yourself working within the business um what was that like working for that company um as you sort of just alluded to some things that you know you was learning a, a few different aspects of how people were getting paid and stuff like that but um what, how long was you with that company for and what was that like
1: so, you know, working at a publishing company is really, I was living in Cal I was living in, in Washington and then connecting with, you know, Master P and 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 hearing from so many people the Bay Area is where you needed to be if you wanted to kind of progress your career. Uh, most people were going to New York to be interns or going to LA to be interns for record companies. And my path, I used to always ask my, myself the question, well, why do I have to go an intern and go get people's coffee and what am i going to learn from that experience and i was lucky enough to meet someone like e40's uncle st charles who really gave me insight to the business from a distribution standpoint because most of the major labels most of the rappers at that time especially you know when you look at the the early 90s everyone was trying to get a record deal hey i want to rap for this i want to i want to get on bmg or loud i want to get on sony or, or mercury or one of these record companies and they weren't thinking long term how can i make sure that i maximize my income so i was always like well why do i have to start at the bottom from that internship standpoint, when I feel that I understand I understand music and how music's made. I understood st- telling a story and I wanted to just start making records immediately. Now I had a, I had a small production company uh, that I started into a label and I was recording different things from, from punk rock to, to doing some sort of rap singles and stuff. But so I always had that mindset of being an entrepreneur and putting records out. But I never really knew the entire aspect of how distribution worked. How do I get into these retail stores where you're not knocking on each door and saying, hey, will you take five of my cassettes or a couple of my pieces of vinyl or a couple of my CDs? And, and, and then if it sells, you give me a check and then I give you more units.
0: Same like, how do we do that? <laughs>
1: Absolutely. And because you understand the return game and, and those folks that are, that are musicians now who may not understood, understand how it used to work, that was putting things on consignment and hoping it sells. Well, how do you in bulk push enough units that make sense? Well, folks like St. Charles taught me how that works, how to put together a project and then make sure that you do what it takes to get your money, get, go get the money. You know, so when, when Masterpiece said in the No Limit Chronicles, he said, St. knew how to get the money. Well, he did. He knew how to put together projects, multiple projects and make sure, that that distributors were high on on what you were doing and making sure that they were excited about what you do.
0: Yeah, no, that's actually dope because um there's so many not necessarily, you know, unsung heroes within the industry, within the culture. And I think sometimes, you know, St. Charles, his name sometimes is I don't wanna say left out. Those that know are familiar with his significance and stuff, um, E4 is uncle, um, P definitely gives him a lot of props on things as well. So um it's dope to know that you had your experiences and stuff around him and you was under that sort of learning tree, and still being able to take that and extend that with your own movements and stuff. So, um, Absolutely. I w- you, I guess you was meeting P quite a lot then, just around the time. Um,
1: that is correct.
0: With just how so you St.
1: Charles is the one who kind of connected us because at that time I was at working at a radio station I alluded to before KGU, and I was doing rap music. So I had the only rap show in the city of Spokane, Washington, which is in the eastern part of, of Washington. And my, myself and Graham X or GMS, we were doing the rap attack. So that was the name of our show. Uh, at that time, too, I was also DJing at a classic rock station, KBXO The Sound, as well as working. Uh, the station also owned the AM side, so I was doing business talk radio at the same time so i'm working at that station and doing those two am and fm i'm also doing the rap show on another station and that's how i connected with saint charles because he would send me different artists and musicians and and i would play their records on on air and i would do some some local promotion for them and stuff like that so he's the one that kind of connected me with master p and just it was just the whole like hey you you really need to connect with this guy so I had, I had met Master P because I was doing a show and I had somebody flake out on the show and I needed someone to perform and my godbrother had turned me on to P and said hey um, you should you should you should use this guy Master P and you know we did the show show went well and then after that we built a relationship. So it was later on, after we were working together, Saint Charles was the one saying to P. Tobin, "Should be your manager, because I always had different ideas of how to do things, how to put songs together, how to tell a story." And I think that was, I think that was beneficial, because Masterpiece Drive is really high and really fast, and he had, and he always wanted to push, push, push. But I think, you know, and he, and he's, he said this before that I kind of set. Set a standard of how do we organize things? How do we make sure that the right pieces are in the right play when you're putting an album together and you're telling a story? And then also making things look bigger than they actually are. So when people step to the, when, when people step and they want to be a part of a project, that they think, like, hey, these guys are organized, they, they know what they're doing, and they're moving in the right direction. So all of those things kind of playing, it's kind of part of it's luck, part of it's skill, part of it being in the right place at the right time. But a big piece of it I, I owe to St. Charles because he really taught me a lot about putting records together, getting distribution, making sure you're getting pra- paid properly, and making sure you're continuing this big funnel of music going through and moving forward.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And um, that's pretty dope. And even just to sort of touch on what you last said, I think that's important because it takes more than you know one element to make something happen and you know p having his drive and p having his his qualities about him is very gun-ho he's inspired a lot of people around the world you know a lot of of, other upcoming entrepreneurs artists you know producers and not to just you know some have gone on to be successful some are still doing their thing and the format that he kind of laid out in one degree if you just follow that um you'll be missing the other elements to the puzzle and stuff as well because it's yes he does have his drive and stuff like that as well but as you said sometimes you need somebody to bring in whether it's the organization aspect whether it's um a bit of an uh, extension on the marketing and things of that nature and stuff like that so we definitely know that you play the vital role can you define just so our is clear what years like what was your span in the years that you've actually with no limits so what year did you start out with connecting with p and knowing okay this is an organization that i'm serious about working with i'm comfortable with this guy you know um you saw enough in his quality of work and in his attributes that you feel you can go forward with the position of being the vp of marketing did you start out being the vp or did was it some you know Yo.
1: No, I didn't. So, you know, connecting in 92 and then eventually coming on board in 1993 is really when I came on to, to no limit, to no limit records. It kind of started off as being, you know, promo guy, um, you know, coming up with certain ideas on marketing and those type of things. It was really St. Charles is the one who told P like, Hey, you need to make Tobin your manager and and allow him to run the label so that's kind of how that came to fruition is at that time i became p's you know personal manager business manager general manager and, and executive vice president of no limit records also being in charge of the management company and managing all the artists so it was kind of you know we were you know some folks would say it was a conflict of interest but we were kind of doing i was kind of doing everything so when we were putting putting together albums, coming up with certain concepts, or picking certain singles, um, anything from what are what are our giveaways going to look like? What are our promotions going to look like? Where are we going strategically? What cities are we going to go to, and what makes sense? Um, where do we need to send t-shirts at, and and where and who are we going to talk to, and what the street team is going to look like, and meeting people and and saying, okay, we're gonna make a decision on who is going to help us promote and building relationships and doing promotional promotional events. Like all of those things were things I was responsible for back at that time. So I was at no limit from 93 to 96. And, you know, if you think about the, the transition of going through, you know, mama's b- bad boy, to the ghettos trying to kill me and the West Coast bad boys, 99 ways to to die true and working with Mia X and then bringing on Mia X and Servon and KLC and Moby Dick and the starts and the Carlos Stevenson and the starting of the piece by the pound. I mean, all of those things I was influential in putting together and and working working through that process. And I think the, the concept of doing a movie, a directed DVD movie, um and and what that looked like and putting the strategy together behind that i think that was the, the the thing that that i probably overall was my responsibility of making sure people knew who we were and what we were doing and kind of making sure the world knew we were a national brand and we weren't just a, a, a local group or local artists or local label we were actually national
0: yeah, no, that but that's actually, you know, you definitely did that. And um, cause you know, by ninety six things were definitely bubbling or well, booming in one aspect, but they went on to higher periods, higher periods okay. and stuff after that. Over that time, did you um encounter like Tupac at any points? So, um,
1: well, we connected with Tupac prior to that because we went on the road with Tupac. So um at that time, Tupac was performing. Um, you know, TRU, Master P, we were opening up for Tupac. So that was, there were different shows that we were doing and going on the road with Tupac. So the time that I, you know, by the time I reconnected with Tupac, it was probably right before he, it was actually right before he passed away, not too long. And we, interacted a little bit. He was coming back to the Bay and performing and, and, and he was also recording with artists like 40. He was recording with Sibo uh, with and folks like that. So he was continuously recording. So I would see him around in studios and things things like that. Um, the last time I actually saw Tupac alive was at Two Shorts Retirement Party. So it was, a, I believe it was a few months before he had passed away. So I saw him at, you know, two shorts retirement party, and um, said hi. And there were a couple, there were a bunch of people there. And and then after that, unfortunately, he died not too much uh, longer after
0: that. Yeah, no rest in peace to Pop man. And um, you know, he's definitely one of the greatest of all time. And um, did it real big for the culture. You know, we know that No Limit definitely had a heavy influence from Pac. We've heard P speak in the past that he actually tried to sign Pac. I don't know if it was actually a formal thing or more of an idea. Is that anything that you had any knowledge of or any part to play?
1: I mean, that was really more of an idea because if you think about timelines of at at that time, going on the road with Pac, Pac was bigger than, than Master P at that time. I think it was more of saying, Hey, one day I, you know, I'd like to to sign him, but as far as being something that was going to happen, no, because by the time we were on the upswing in 95 and 96, we were 95, 95, we were national. 96 is when I would say, well, we broke open the doors and people really knew who we were. By that time, Tupac was so deep in the death row and figuring out what he was going to do and what he was going to be and starting his own label and all that kind of stuff. That wasn't something that was going to come to fruition at that particular point, though.
0: Okay. And what about with um, Snoop Dogg signing? With Snoop Dogg coming over to No Limit, um, I know people have a lot of mixed views on it. You being out in the West Coast at the time, what do you think?
1: Well, I think Snoop was looking for a home and P was looking for something to really take him in and, and No Limit to the next level. So it just worked. I mean, he he threw Brian Turner and Brian at that time, you got to understand Priority. They pretty much, when you talk about gangster rap, Priority pretty much owned gangster rap. Um, you know, so I think ultimately that whole transition had to do with Snoop needed someone to watch his back, and P wanted something. One thing about P, he loves to make sure that no limit, and Matt and his name is the biggest thing in the room. So he was going to make that happen, and that's through Brian Turner having the relationship with with, or at least having knowledge and communication with with, with uh, Suge and Snoop and P, and putting that all together, and then you know P saying, "Hey, let's go make this thing happen." and and pulling the trigger on that and I think what happened I don't know if if Snoop's best music was made at No Limit but I think that gave Snoop the opportunity to kind of stand on his own two feet do his own thing and and I know he's very appreciative of 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 P and I know P is appreciative of Snoop uh during that transition and I think on the west coast it was more of like wait what's going on or how that does, does that that sound make sense and you know it worked out there were some hit records that were done and snoop you know sold a lot of records and obviously uh it was a, it was a good thing for him and obviously a good thing for no limit it was like it was like signing the biggest free agent in a, in an american sport like if you're talking football or basketball mm-hmm. like that it was it was a huge signing and a lot of people were talking about that
0: there yeah, No. Okay. And um, you know, staying on that, just sticking with the, you know, the music and the creating side of things. So with your time at no limit, you sort of referenced earlier about yourself, just having experience with music, creating music and stuff as well. So you was around, you know, King George, Big Head, a lot of um, Mia X, a lot of creative uh, sir, sir what were some of those studio sessions like in any particular standout sessions that you feel as though, you know what, I was there when this was recorded and, you know, to share some of those experiences?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, when you think about putting together the Down South Hustlers and, uh, you know, I I was responsible for flying Pimp C and Bun B out to California and putting them up for several weeks as we were doing okay. uh, the Down South North. Hustlers. Yeah, rest in peace to Pimp C and having those guys come to california and recording those guys and then also working on you know most of the ice cream man and those and pimp c being a part and bun b being a part of that whole that whole down south movement at that time they weren't as large as they they would eventually become but people respected them as artists and they respected them as a group and and they said what they said and they stood by what they stood by so when those guys were recording Players from the South or, uh, you know, we put, when we were recording that record or or when we re-recorded um, About It, Pass but with KLC's beat, and then, you know, putting together uh, Mr. Ice Cream Man and all of those projects. The thing that was so exciting to me and kind of sticks out to me is the TRU True album. Because we recorded that album in about two weeks. There was probably another week of mixing and all that stuff, but as far as the re- recording aspect of it, it was sitting down and saying, hey, we've got a certain amount of time to get this album out. We've already got pre-orders on this album because we were pre-promoting everything at that time. And watching folks like Mia X and C murder and, 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 and Big Ed and King George and, and all of these guys and Silk the Shocker, record these songs at like a rapid pace and having a sense of, of, of love for it because it was exciting because we would be doing promotion and marketing during the day and we would be at the studio all night. So it was, we were probably, P and I at that time, we were probably up 20 hours a day recording these projects and doing the different things that we needed to do. And the great thing about being in the studio and you're, you're working with someone like a Ken Franklin, Kay Lou, who did some production, but also helped us with the, the recording of these projects. There was an excitement around. We knew we had something really special. I think the other thing to it too, is it's the, it's the work ethic of Master P because he would, you know, at the end of the night when I would drop him off at home, probably two in the morning, three in the morning, he would say, hey, what time are you coming to pick me up? And I would say, all right, I'll be here at six. And he would like, okay, I'll be ready. And then I'd come in at six, he'd be ready. and We'd go and start our day all over again. And this is consistent days of making sure that we had enough good quality music and making sure we're having a strategy around what that what that music was and how we were telling a story, starting with the ghettos trying to kill me Um, Going on to 99 Ways, the West Coast Bad Boys, the Down South Hustlers, the Ice Cream Man. All of those projects were important to tell a story. And bringing in someone like Mia X was very helpful because she had her own idea and her own sound. And she was a a star down in Louisiana, specifically New Orleans. And KLC was an up-and-coming producer who had great sound. And Moby Dick was really good at playing keys and R&B. It just all came together at the same time and it just kind of took off like a like a rocket, if you will.
0: Yeah, no, that's dope. Speaking of stories, um what's the story on Reverend Um Durang?
1: Yeah, so we you know, the the whole concept of, of Reverend Durong was just kind of if you those folks who, who go to church and there's always this fast talking preacher, not always, but a lot of times it's a fast talking preacher who has you know, ideas around money. And sometimes they're, they're so fast talking. You don't know if they're, they're, they're seedy or not. And coming up with the concept of, I don't know, I've been to several churches and you kind of see a guy who's driving around in the Cadillac or the Mercedes Benz, and they've got the gold and the platinum and all that. And you're like, okay. And you think about that, what that minister looks like, or that Reverend looks like, The whole concept of reverend durong was just like he's a guy in the hood who makes a ton of money and he's a preacher and the whole concept of that is what went on music went on albums right so once the the whole dynamic of with king george and his voice and and the way he he would enunciate certain words and his comedic timing worked really well on those albums so whether it was a no limit album or as we, you know, as P. King and I split, and and we had me and my entertainment, my label, we would do those those skits. They just kind of carried over because people liked them. They liked them because they were funny. They could have a concept of somebody, um, you know, who's a who's a fast-talking minister, and it, and and the the comedic timing of King it just made it really funny. And then we put kids on their on there and and different people with different kind of concepts. So overall Reverend Duron was just very popular, you know, character and, and people really loved the character itself.
0: Yeah, no, I think it was definitely dope. but I think it was creative how you was able to, um, you know, just use skits at the time across different albums and have a sort of, you know, a character within it that continues over. We could tell it was King and stuff. Um, was that a character you created? Because I've seen it still sort of surfacing around it. Was there some type of spinoff show or something to it?
1: Yeah. So we did a, we did a movie. Um, I think it was kind of a combination of a lot of things on the creation of it. I think the, we talked about Reverend Wright and, and all that. So the concept of it, I think it was just a, the combination of all of us. I think okay. the name we talked about Reverend Wrong. you know, I I mentioned Reverend Wrong or Reverend Wright and, and Do Right, And we just kind of came up with these different names. And I think it was just really ultimately, you know, Probably, I, I think it was probably more King, kind of said, "Hey, do wrong." That's kind of a like something that's kind of catchy, and kind of based based on that. That's when P was like, "Yeah, do wrong. That's it, and then kind of developing the character from there. And I think the what, what you kind of see now is taking that kind of basic concept of a of a crooker reverend and putting him to to screen is the transition and the development that. I, that I did, with some assistance from a director, David Mark Grishop, um, to kind of bring it to bring it to the movie side of it, and then a comedian like Lester Bibbs, kind of making that into something, into a really a, a, a viable character that's not just a one-minute skit. That's a full-feature movie or on or a TV, you know, or TV show. It just kind of presents that to the world.
0: Yeah, no, I understand, and it shows the creative aspects of just. That you've got the ability to add dimensionality onto something so um you know with that being said you know we talked Reverend Durand and King George because I mentioned it it's because something that you know sometimes when people split and they go separate ways some things aren't carried over but King George you still sort of carried over T.I.U. and stuff like that and um the Reverend Durand stuff in terms of the yeah. split we've heard some of the stuff on the Noleot Chronicles we've heard you um speak on it in past interviews and stuff but um if you could probably speak slightly on what point was it that you um, decided to split? But prior to that, actually, well, I wanted to ask you about the, the situation with Badman and No Limit and how you personally felt at the time, because, you know, instead of us going backwards, we'll stay there and then we'll get to splitting from No Limit after that.
1: Yeah, sure. So, I mean, at the time, um, we, you know... If you look at Cash Money at that time, from a local standpoint, if you talk about Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, moving into uh, parts of Texas, they were they were well known. Um, Robert Gillerman, who used to run Southwest Wholesale, which was a, a big distributor, one stop at the time, really, but then eventually became a distributor. They had a relationship with those guys, and they were, you know, really hot. What? My whole idea about working with cash money had to do with I love their music and what they were doing, but it was more of if we had a if we had a label like cash money with no limit records, I often thought that we would control the South and nobody else could could handle us and we could move into expanding our sound to the East Coast. And we already had that sound from the West because we had West producers and we were spent time in the West. We were already moving towards the south as developing the Down South Hustlers and signing with Baby and Slim and putting their records out. And even even if we just did a little bit of working production angle and doing the distribution, that could have been something that would have been huge. I mean, you talk about groundbreaking, right? With their sound, what they did, they were already really popular and I think the biggest thing for me was I wanted to work with them because I respect their talent first and foremost. But I thought that it was a good opportunity for us to really, really run hip hop or change hip hop, and almost like being overnight becoming a, a major label when you have a when you have a label like Cash Money and you and you you know work with them. It's no and at the time we you know being at no limit. And then all we would need to do is figure out how do we get an East Coast sound or how do we get somebody from the East Coast. We nationally we become known nationally really overnight. And that's really was was the focus at that time or what we were trying to do. Okay,
0: and you was there, there with Pete when you met with baby and stuff like that. Yeah. And um, I,
1: I, I was there, I was there, I was the one who kind of pushed the, the meeting. I was the one who wanted to do the deal and then, yes, um, there was a portrayal of, of, of myself and P meeting with, with Baby and Slim at the, at the restaurant. All of that is definitely very accurate.
0: Okay. So um, in terms of that then, because, you know, you just expressed your thoughts on it. And, you know, people have different mixed thoughts. Some say, he or Boston is all right. Bad man, baby, you know, he or Boston is all right. And it's yeah. good that they both sort of went separate ways. I agree Would it been huge for the culture. And me as a young fan at the time, when I came across Cash Money initially, I thought they had something to do with No Limit just based on the presentation. And it would have been great to see, you know, especially if that could have happened. But, um, you know, people have differences on opinion. So with differences in opinion being taken into account, we get to you sort of departing with No Limit you know, there were creative differences there. There's been somewhat differences in stories and we're hearing that um some say you were trying to take some artists and leave. You know, um obviously there's there's always multiple sides to a story and the guy is cutting down
1: they say there's three sides, each side in the truth. <laughs> I will just say I was never trying to take any artists and leave. I I you know, ultimately uh, the story's been told, but you know, for since you're asking I never tried to take any artists and leave. I had pretty much every dollar that I owned, and included my credit, invested in No Limit Records. So I was not trying to, to depart from No Limit Records. I was not trying to do a side deal for No Limit Records. What I did have was a relationship with certain labels that were interested in publishing deals, and there were producers that were coming to me that wanted publishing deals. So that was the, the whole dynamic of it. And you know you would have to talk to p why you know why this this thing got blown out of proportion and he decided he wa- he wanted you know in this conversation with me is he wanted his company back so that was that's something you'd have to talk to him about i haven't talked to him in 20 some odd years i couldn't even tell you the date the last time that we saw each other but i will just say at no time was i trying to you know move on or anything because everything that i had was invested in no limit records you know, if I if I had a dollar, I was trying to put it into the company, to because I saw the vision of what it was going to be. I probably would say that I even believed in it more than anybody else that, that he had around him because I was I was all in on what we were doing, how we were doing, and then the different concepts of of, of bringing music out to the world, and then developing into doing movies and and uh, heck I even had ideas to do like, put together video games and all these different things before it was popular for video games cuz we we're talking about we're, we're in the, the early to mid 90s so those ideas around that and you know and think about this even prior to that Master P was going to sign a couple was looking at signing an artist deal and I'm the one who said we're not doing that no we're going to hold off this is the the the, the whole distribution deal and making sure that we held out for that was me. So when I think about, you know, King George and C. Murder being upset with me because we turned down a a significant amount of dollars from Big Beat Atlantic because they wanted to advance all this money, but then they wanted to own the rights to the name and the likeness of Master P. And I was like, why would we do that? We're so close. And then signing the deal with Priority Records and being a part of that process There was no way I was going to, you know, gonna split up because we were on this trajectory that was amazing. So that's the. So when when folks say that, it's it's just not it's just not accurate. And you know, I've talked about it so many times, Fonzie. It's hilarious, but there's no way that that was gonna happen. It wasn't gonna happen. And you'd have to talk to P of why he thought the way he thought without even having a conversation with me. Or why he made the decisions that he wanted his company back, as if I was taking over or took over the company.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's a shame, and even from some of the stuff we spoke about, and that we can tell from you and from the type of person and character that you are, um, you you invested countless hours, you invested a lot of time, energy, resources, stuff. So that wasn't for nothing. That was definitely because you believed in it, and you you was a part of what was happening. Um, it seems like when we look back at the story of No Limit, there's a lot of um, splits and rifts that happen down to um, miscommunication and different things and, and stuff like that. So, um, and sometimes just dealing with our people in general, it's something that um, often afflicts us. Just uh, miscommunication causing to um, things sort of falling out and breaking down. But moving, yes. I guess, on from that in a positive light, you know, as we said, I know you probably uh, not sick of telling the story, but it's a part of your story and um, a part of your life. But we ain't trying to dwell on um, the negative aspects. That. You move forward and, and continue down with um, working in the business, still releasing yep. some um, compilation. At what point do you make it back to Texas and and you know start working with Lil Troy?
1: Well, you know when when we when P and I split and King split and and King and King George and I kind of came together to do the Life of a Kingpin album. There. At that time, nobody really wanted a King George album, you know, it just, it just felt like they weren't ready for it. So I was having a difficulty with getting distribution. And really, at the end of the day, of all the distributors I talked to, um, and including St. Charles, cause St. Charles and I had a conversation about this probably a month or two ago. And I was frustrated because no one really wanted to do a deal for, with me for my label at that particular point. And at that moment, King George was my only artist. And, um, you know, Saint said, like, hey, there wasn't a lot of buzz for the King George Project. This is solo away from No Limit. So the only distributor one stop was Southwest Wholesale in Houston. So after I, you know, built the relationship at the time was Mark Gammon was was their guy who was bringing on new labels. And then eventually Robert Gillerman was in charge of the whole operations. His, he's. Part owner of the company, and I built a relationship with him. They were the only distribution company that really wanted to do do business with me and, and, and do business with the King George Project. Um, there was another, you know, small distributor in, in Kansas City who 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 really helped us get started by doing some COD business with us, and then we kind of took that money to market and promote. But Once, you know, Southwest Wholesale in Houston was the only distribution company that wanted to work with us. That's when I started spending a lot of time in Texas. So if there was a time, if you looked at, once we had the success of the King George album was on the Billboard charts several weeks, then we did our own compilation, the Players and Hustlers album, and then we did True Vision, and then we started doing all these different projects. People knew us in Texas because that's where we sold a lot of records. Texas, Mississippi, Alabama, um, Kansas City, uh, Iowa like we were when that whole midwest and south we were really big okay. and and we would go to we'd go to clubs and people would just you know it was it was almost so crazy that we were really famous in certain parts of the south so i think a big piece of that was we just spent a lot of time there because that's where people liked us and we were hot I connected with Troy because, one, I sold a lot of records down there and with Southwest Wholesale. He had a relationship with Southwest Wholesale where he was putting his projects out. But he was looking for some marketing and promotion. And Mean Green, um, the famous DJ, um, radio DJ Mean Green, who had his Mean Green album that went Gold Through No Limit, he's the one who connected me with Troy and introduced me to Troy. Along with Robert Gillerman. So it was a combination of me and Green and, and Robert Gillerman connecting us, and he wanted some marketing done of a Mass 187 project. So when he had that project, I helped with some promotion and stuff, and it, and it didn't do very well. It, you know, sold some some records, but nothing uh, nothing big. And at that time, Troy was trying to figure out whether he wanted to put out another album, and and we talked about, or I kind of gave him the suggestion, why don't you put your own album out, and we utilize your name and we utilize your concepts and ideas. We put this album together and then we make it happen. And, you know, prior to, prior to, you know, us working together on this the, the Sit and Fat Down South album, Troy had some moderate success with a few thousand copies, but what happened with, with the, the Sit and Fat Down South record, you know, we had that record all over the South. We went to, to, went to the Kappa Beach party we were out in Galveston, and we were promoting the single "Want to Be a Baller," and the thing just took off. And we, you know, we are my relationship with Stan Cobble, A.K.A. SK, was really the street and promotion aspect of blowing that record up. And with me and my distribution, and, and really the whole the whole St. Charles thing is what kind of made sure the the album was in the retail stores. We had a lot of units out there, and we wound up, you know, selling. You know, over three hundred thousand albums before the album transitioned on to uh, to Universal.
0: Okay, yeah, that was dope. I it definitely did. remember yeah. that that um wanna be a of man even out here in the, the UK that was playing that it, it reached out here. So <laughs> you know, Well I, I know
1: think. it did because I've been you know I've been out there and you know people I I'll be in a club you know and I hear the record playing so it's it's always exciting to. To hear about that and when people talk about it, it's 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 exciting to be a part of, you know, when you think about, you know, my experience with No Limit and then, you know, having some significant success with King George as well, and then transitioning on to, you know, someone like Troy, being a part of, I would say, a 3 prong approach of, of, of seeing some meteoric rise in success, it's it's exciting to be a part of that. And things move so fast and there's just an excitement around it. And sometimes a little bit of anxiousness too. So when you, when you're a part of multiple projects like that, you know, you start to think, wow, like, man, this, this, we're going to do it again. You know, it's kind of like, oh, you, you win the Super Bowl, right. Or you win the playoffs or you win a championship and then you move on to another team and then you win the championship again. And then you move on to another team, win the championship again. You feel that you're, you know, you're a part of something magical and special, and it, and it it worked out really well.
0: No, definitely, and you have been, and even just on that note, how do you, did you, or do you, I guess, because you still hold um a lot of hats and a lot of different creative endeavors. How do you balance or resolve a lot of that? Because, you know, sometimes people find it, um you know, convoluted when you're managing a lot of different projects and stuff like that. Um, what was your sort of focus and discipline that kept you grounded or keep you grounded?
1: Well, I think the ultimate thing is is just what's the overall goal, right? It's you know, uh, I, I always try to be in a situation. Am I part of a solution? Can I solve a problem? That's the only deal that I think about. Can I solve the problem? If I can solve a problem and I can help people, you know, get to where they want to go, that that's that's how it works, and that's how it's that's how it's worked for me. So when I was at No Limit, how do I solve a problem of, of making us into a national brand someone who has all this energy like master p like how do i make sure that i solve the problem where people see him in the best possible light and people as a person that people want to do business with the same thing with king george same thing with troy and same thing you know with my own career as as i do things it's all about how do i solve the problem how do I create this, this, this great attitude, effort, loyalty with, with my, within myself and within the people that are around me? And once you do all of those things, you start prioritizing what makes most sense. What's going to get you the most bang for your buck? The, the whole piece about moving down, moving down south and doing the down south hustlers had to do with, it was pure economics if you think about it. He was from the South. He was from New Orleans going back to Louisiana made sense from that perspective, but it was a dollar, a dollar would, would go a lot further in the South than it did would, would be on the West coast. You know, I could spend, you know, I could spend a thousand dollars in the South somewhere in Mississippi or Alabama and have all the commercials and and, and really, really move units. If I spent a thousand dollars in LA or San Francisco or Oakland, it's, it's, now, it doesn't really do much for us. So it's the economic side of it. It's keeping organized. It's making sure where should I put my money or my time and effort and making sure that, you know, sol- you're, we're solving problems along the way. And if we do those things, that's how you can manage everything at the same time. And that's and also getting some people to help you out when you know that, that, that it's overwhelming. Who can I get to assist me or help me? With the, the entire process of whatever
0: I'm doing. Yeah, no, that's real, having that support system. And I want to say, having a great um, attitude and running, that's one thing we noticed from you online. You always impart a lot of positivity, always, um, you know, a lot of big smiles, a lot of, um, you know, fun activity and stuff, being out there with different people in the world, just showing, you know, a good aspect of life. You don't put out anything negative or anything like that. And, uh, it's definitely stuff that people appreciate and Thank see from you, you know, so I want to say I do personally so uh And with that being said, you know, working around No Limit, King George, Troy in the music business for many years, seeing a lot of success and understanding the fundamentals of how things were then with, dig- with distribution, when things started changing towards the digital era, did you sort of see it coming as something that was going to kill or change the business? It, it, it something that made you think i need to transition from this now into other endeavors because as we know that entrepreneurial spirit can never die you're still out here doing a lot of different stuff in that now and you know yeah. um but did you feel like with the digital shift coming in like this was like a big change in the game
1: i did you know i one of the things that i used to talk to different record companies about is just being diversifying what you're doing and figure out how you monetize the digital aspect of it. I had a conversation with Jay Boberg from MCA. He was the, the CEO of uh, uh, MCA. And I remember having a conversation as Napster was taking off, like, you got to find a way to monetize this, this digital download thing. Because if you don't, the industry's going to be in trouble well i think the the big piece what i knew it was going to be a challenge after i'm having that conversation and people are shunning me thinking that you know i don't know what i'm talking about because they think that you know this thing's this thing has lasted for the last 60 70 80 years it's going to continue to last i think you know when distributors couldn't pay me so when you have distributors that owe you you know, almost $500,000 and they can't pay you. Or you have another distributor that owes you over a quarter million dollars. They can't pay you. Well, those are the things that make you realize you need to figure out something else to do because you're not getting paid for, for what you're doing, what you've already sold. And I think that was the, that was the writing on the wall. Unfortunately, I wasn't in a position to figure out, you know, I didn't know enough engineers at the time. Like now, you know I know engineers and and folks like that that could probably you know do all kinds of finds all kinds of ways to monetize you know digital music and film and video games and all that stuff but at that time I didn't know any and I wish I knew some folks that could have done that because you know we could have changed a lot of the industry and the industry would have had you know it would have been a lot different and nowadays like folks you know they download things for free you know it's very rare that they pay and the only way, or not the only way, but the two things that an artist can do to make money is one is is have merchandise, because that's very important, because people will always want merchandise. And the second thing is, is making sure that they're able to perform. Because of COVID-19, they can't. So when, if you think about the all these festivals, money is exchanging hands for these artists. That's why record companies are doing 360 deals where they make money off of everything that, that you do and everything these artists do. And unfortunately artists aren't really thinking about how they hold the power they're allowing the record companies to give them maybe 15 dollars thirty thousand dollars up front they're signing these 360 deals and they think that that they've got a good deal when they don't and I will just tell you it's uh, the same thing like I told master P back in the back in the 90s you hold out and you build your brand then you can write your own ticket. So that's something that, that folks need to think about. And when I think about the the digital aspect of business, understand how you can monetize yourself. And if you understand how you can monetize yourself, you can be successful. And I think so many of artists are, are not, you know, they're not doing that for themselves. They want here, I sign, you make me a star, instead of doing what it takes to make yourself a star and it's just at this end there's there's sensory overload because there's so many artists i get you know i get a lot of music people send to me all the time some of it good some of it not so good but it's right place right time but it's making sure you're willing to do the work the only bad thing i think now is with covid you can't perform in front of people like you did before yeah so if you can't perform that's a whole revenue stream you don't have so I've been talking artists, if you can get to an engineer that can put together, nowadays we've got a lot of things digitally, we've got a lot of VR systems, how do we perform, how do we put on a concert, and people That's can well. use their VR systems, right? We do a virtual tour where people can feel that they're at the concert, they've got these VR glasses, they've got the headphones on, and they feel that they're in the concert, and you do that in a musical setting, that's how you're gonna change the game. And if you're a small artist and you know a few engineers that can help you develop that or design that for a specific platform, and you can sell that service to other folks, or you can, from a standpoint, building your fan base by putting together a fan program that can, people can use point system to buy things that not only you offer, maybe there's Amazon products you can offer, maybe there's, there's uh, video games, other things that you can design. If you do those things, you can be successful. But so many young folks or artists all oh, they're they're looking for that instant gratification, and you gotta
0: put in the work yeah, no that's a you know great um that's um i don't i, I want to say the right that's invaluable advice right there for I think, for anybody <laughs> and um you know as you said we, we we do live in a time of um you know fast gratification that people want people want things instantly. To some degree it may have always been that way or people are in the conditionality of that's the way to sort of go about it. Some say there's an esteem of some people to uh, you know, feel as though I'm an artist and I've been signed and I've been, you know, sort of given this and it, it, they feel as though it uplifts them. That's why there's I have the utmost respect for what you guys have done and achieved and still continue to do because of the work that it takes, you know, prior to making anything happen. Like you said, those twenty hours a days, you know, nonstop grinding those you know, extra details, crossing the T's and dotting the eyes and stuff like that. Um, you know, it takes a lot. And um, even just what you just imparted there for artists, it's definitely true. If more people was able to um, tap into their own inner power and just hold that, because that's what they use to create their art at the same time. So um, it's just um, people are keeping that sort of uh, entrepreneurial mind there. Understandably, it's not for everybody. Everybody's different. That's why pe- other people are needed to. Um, You know, play their part. Some people, they can't really play that part. So, you know, I understand that. Um, But but
1: think about it this way, Fonzie, you want to watch your money. I mean, even if you're not an entrepreneur by heart, you want to make sure you're watching your money and understanding where your money goes. And you want to make sure you're doing the basics, like, you know, making sure your taxes are paid and making sure you're, if record companies are spending money, where's the money going? What are they spending it on? Is it gonna benefit you? Are you just a throwaway artist that they need to lose money because it's better for their taxes? Or are you an artist they're going to invest their time and effort and money into? At the very least, if you sign a deal with somebody, you should at least know what they're doing. Or if, if they're not doing the work you want them to do, maybe you can say, hey, look, why don't you give me this material and I'll go ahead and take care of this. I'll go ahead and promote myself. And it's not about being an entrepreneur, it's about monitoring your dollars. And making sure you're not getting messed over in the game. The music industry is known for messing people over because they've been allowed to do it for for years and years. Yeah. Now, art. If you're a hot artist, you think about artists like little Nas X, who basically he he grabbed a beat that he uh, that he leased for next to nothing and created a, a uh, created a song that was huge. And then the next thing you know it. He, you know, hooked up with uh, Billy Ray Cyrus and, and, and went viral, and the rest is history. Yep. So you have to do the work. And folks that aren't, just because you're not an entrepreneur, entrepreneur, I will tell you, like I tell a lot of my students, be comfortable with being uncomfortable. If you want to be successful, you have to be okay with being uncomfortable. And and, and, and figuring out how you can put yourself in the best position to be successful Read up on other folks who are entrepreneurs and what works for them. Take that information and knowledge and use that for your own career. It's not enough to say, hey, I got a record deal, and I'm going to let someone else do it, because at the end of the day, they're not going to invest in you more than you're going to invest in yourself. Even if you have a deal that's not a good deal, okay, let's work that angle, make the most money you can make, and then present yourself in a better position.
0: Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And now with that being said, you know, you mentioned this is stuff that you, um, you actually give to your students and stuff. So we know that you teach classes. We know that you've got other business endeavors like Psycho Cider. Can you talk a bit more about the, the new projects and stuff that you've been doing and what you're working on at the minute?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So Psycho Cider, uh, is, is my business that I have. It's a, it's a cider business. So we make, um, a variety of, uh, of ciders or alcoholic beverages little less than seven percent alcohol with different flavors that we are primarily distributing in northern california um so ultimately i wanted to years ago i wanted to do uh, do sake because sake is really uh, really
0: popular sake. <laughs> yeah
1: so i wanted to do that in a flavor and my, my mind was like well i want to do a flavor sake Well, in the United States, it's really difficult to get a sake license, because you have to have a brewer's license and a wine license, and and it's really difficult to get. And as I was progressing and transitioning, I had someone tell me, hey, why don't you try hard cider? I was never really into hard cider. Uh, I did drink it once in a while, but never really. and, And I had some, and most of the cider that I had was very sweet. And I wanted to provide a cider that wasn't sweet, that was smooth wasn't too bitter, wasn't too sweet, but had a really good alcohol content. So I came up with the concept of going from psycho sake to psycho cider and then coming up with different flavors no one else has. That was part of the, the transition. Like when people drink it, some folks are like, oh, I don't really like sweet. Well, why don't you try it? And when they try it, it's, Low sugar, because we're using the fruit to it. We're not using any additives or sugars that's not directly from the fruit. So fruit enhances the sugar, it's a smooth taste. And it was about, hey, how do I get into restaurants? It was the same concept of distribution. How do I get into bars and restaurants? What does that look like? Um, building relationships, offering discounts, uh, paying for advertising in retail stores as we transition into cans. like. The same concept that I did when I was at No Limit and me and my entertainment is the same concept that I'm using for Psycho Cider. is getting into uh, as, in front of as many people as possible, throwing good events and, and making sure that people feel good about the product and they enjoy the product. And then the concept, the marketing concept of the people that are in the ads that, that I put together and that we work with different folks that are excited about it. And once we've done that, we've kind of created this excitement we did lose a little bit of momentum with COVID. I wouldn't say a little, a lot of momentum with COVID, but transitioning from the kegs we were doing on premise to moving into cans has kind of made us into made us relevant again. You know, talk. You talked about adjusting with digital. Well, we had to adjust with COVID by going into cans. Re, people need to buy. People are going to buy alcohol some way, somehow. Why not they get it from us? And we provide that to them uh, into a a retail environment, whether it's a, you know, a grocery outlet or whether it's a a liquor store like a Perry's Liquor or whether it's a, a restaurant. They are able to get, you know, buy four packs, six packs of psycho cider and enjoy those things. So that whole dynamic has been exciting to me. And I've been telling everyone, I'm like, this is, this is, what i felt like when i first went to no limit or i first started me and my entertainment i had all this excitement and energy around putting this project together and it's starting to just really start to grow and people are starting to know about it i think the other thing that's exciting about it with the internet right With with the with instagram and tiktok and facebook and all of these things More people are reaching out all over, all over California and even all over the world are saying, man, I'm interested in this. And even if people can't purchase the product now, because it's really only based out of California, Northern California, um, more and more people are buying the shirts and the hats and the the doggy jackets and all those things that we have that are available for folks. People are purchasing that. And I'm, you know, I'm getting people who are pop up pictures all over the country says, man, when are you going to get it out here? So that's creating that buzz prior to us even having our license in other states and being able to move into those other states. And eventually we will get there. So that's one aspect of what we're doing with Psycho Cider. The other project that I have, I'm doing with one of my former students who's now my business partner. His name is Josh Hammer. We started Costin and Hammer Network. Which is a network that we're doing with YouTube to to promote different shows. Some of it's educational, some of it's comedy, some of it's about sports, um, and we're raising money for the Special Olympics here in in, in, the, in California. So we're focused on the Special Olympics before we before we did the Make a Wish Foundation and we were able to grant a wish. Now we're focused on the. Uh, on the Special Olympics because it's you know it's important to Josh and myself Hammer and I that we give back to the community and those are the, really the two projects that I'm I'm really focused on right now because that's a lot and then also I teach at Holy Names University uh, I teach a variety of business courses sports management sports marketing uh, sports psychology so I'm just really you know focus on teaching others how to to maximize their income and teaching folks how to start businesses and teaching folks how to run the business departments, because i think that's very important because so many people aren't having the so many people didn't have the opportunity to have conversations with folks that keep it real and that's the that's the challenge i had when i was in college when i was in college you know, there weren't too many folks that kept it real with me. They gave me this this textbook version of what life was going to be or what work was going to be. And I try to be 100% real with with any student that I have. I tell them, hey, this is what you need to learn, and this is what you'll probably be working on in your your career. And I always tell folks, start a business if you can. It's good for your uh, it's good for your tax situation. It's good for you to kind of be able to write some things off for those folks who are. Who are, who are, you know, in the U.S. with our tax laws and the way they are, we're able to write some things off. So if you're able to, to to start a business, you're able to buy property. Those are the type of things that I try to, you know, teach folks how to do and help them with. It's important. And then eventually we're going to start talking about cryptocurrency. I'm still still learning more and more about it. I have friends who are in cryptocurrency, but that is, if you can get ahead of the game with cryptocurrency, that's going to do something that
0: benefits you. Yeah, I was gonna say just on that note, you know, you know, great advice and stuff once again. But um, I was gonna ask you if you had any um, interest around crypto, and I could maybe see you in the um, CBD business, which is moving and gonna be, you know, very quite huge at the minute, but still um, exploding as well. So um, that could be another area of interest, you. <laughs>
1: Absolutely. I mean, there's all there's look, there's always opportunity. Like I said earlier, can you solve a problem? If you figure out how to solve a problem. All those things come into play. And there's no guarantee. I mean, heck, I've failed on businesses. I've won on businesses. It just depends. It's just how it goes. Like I have a I have a passion for service that defines my personality. I always wanna to try to help as many people as possible. Sometimes that works to a benefit, sometimes it's a detriment because, you know, people can take advantage of that. But I keep grinding because I know what I'm doing can work if, if right right relationships, people in the right roles, and me continuing to learn and, and grow, that's how it works for anybody. So I'm excited about the Costin and Hammer Network CHM because we're going to be giving uh, back to our community through the Special Olympics. And I'm excited about Psycho Cider because I'm, I'm building something special and different and something that no one else is doing at this particular time. And I'll continue to do that and, and grow that as long as I can.
0: Yeah, well, move the psycho side, we're definitely excited about it here in the UK. I've been seeing a lot of the posts, you drinking the um, lemonade slushes and all this stuff. And I'll be <laughs> like, you know, that stuff look good. I'll, I'll, you know, when you got something worked out that we could order maybe some cases and stuff out here, we're going to do that. And, um, Absolutely. You know, I want to say salute and support for the work that you've done, you know, and um, continue to be doing, and especially importantly, the, char- the charitable work that you're doing as well. And, um, Thank you teaching others and imparting knowledge onto others and stuff. I think that's commendable. Um, is there anything uh, that you want to plug last year or anything, any messages you want to leave?
1: Well, you know, um, no. I mean, there's there's a couple of uh, artists that I, you know, kind of watch for and look for. A uh, uh, EDM producer named Ben Trax. He's out of uh, Seattle, Washington. He's real hot right now. So if you're looking for a hot EDM producer, uh, Ben Trax is hot. Uh, my man, Kazi, a uh, rapper uh, from the South, uh, from Pensacola, Florida, he's somebody I check out as well. So Ben Trax and Kazi, both of those guys are uh, are, are hot, so I'm always looking for stuff from them. Um, and that's pretty much about it. Um, if you can give back to your community, no matter where you live in the world, that's important. The other aspect of if there's an opportunity for your, to vote, no matter what country you're in, use that opportunity to vote and use that opportunity to make change do those things, I think everything else will take care of itself.
0: Right, that's peace. And with that being said, lastly as you mentioned voting, um you made a decision where you, where you vote's gonna be placed that those something that yeah, yes. you don't catch it yet.
1: Uh, yeah, I don't mind sharing that. I, I made my choice a long time ago and you know Joe Biden is the individual I'll be voting for. Um I think he's a person that you know cares about people, and I think that there's an opportunity that we can do in the United States of America, we can do better. Um, You know, you don't have to necessarily agree with what folks are doing, but, you know, there's some non-negotiables for me, and a non-negotiable is how we treat people, how we interact with people, are we professional with them? Um, you know, I can dis I can dislike what you're doing and I cannot be not agree with you, but I don't need to call you names and talk about people. I don't need to um to incite violence and and get people to be scared about things. those are those are the things that are currently being done under the current president and you know I have a my issue with the president has to do with almost putting a really good friend of mine out of business because he did some business for the president, in some in some of his uh, hotel locations, and he didn't pay my friend. So personally, there's I'm never going to vote for for Donald Trump. I'm never going to think that Donald Trump's going to do something special when when you have someone who's a friend of yours who literally almost loses their business, almost loses their home because someone just doesn't want to pay them. I'm never going to be okay with that person. And anyone who, who else is, they want to vote for him. That's their choice, because that's the great thing about having choice in this in, in this life of ours. I'm not voting for him, and I'm voting for Joe Biden. And I hope uh, Joe Biden wins, and we can get to some sort of normalcy in the world right now and move forward. But if uh, you know, if if President Trump wins again, I don't know. We'll see what happens. But it's we're definitely not moving in the right direction. As a leader, you have to take ownership of your mistakes. If you can't take ownership of your mistakes and you're just pointing the finger at other people, that's the problem. So that's my two cents. I do not mind talking about who I voted for. Some folks get really weird about Mm -hmm. that, but I don't care. I have my reasons for voting. Um, I have a ton of reasons, but I'll just start off with, with the president almost putting a good friend of mine out of business and him almost losing his home. That's enough for me not to vote for him. He's not a good person.
0: Oh, I understand that. We can appreciate that. And um, so, with that being said, I guess in the meantime, we, um, we just got to keep uh, biding our time and see how. Excuse me. <laughs> <president>, see how <laughs> yeah, it goes.
1: our time, and we'll see how this thing goes. I'm, you know, at the end of the day, it's going to be what it's going to be. I think, um, you know, when people think about where they want things to go, normalcy. Being able to be relaxed about things is important for our mindset. There's a pandemic going on around the world. How do we handle that? It's not ignoring it, it's just taking it on. It's like we talked about solving problems this entire time we've talked. You gotta be able to solve the problem by admitting there's a problem and figuring out a solution to that problem. Putting our head in the sand like an ostrich does not does not work. That's, it doesn't work at any level for any leaders at any time.
0: Yeah, no, that's real. So with that being said, man, um, I appreciate your time and stuff. We appreciate all your efforts and your works, and um, we hope you continue to stay safe and stay blessed out there. And um, we're gonna make it through this time. And um, as you said, next year, twenty twenty one, maybe we'll see some sort of results and some kind of um, normalcy or a bit more of, a, you know, a balanced period for people. But um, absolutely, it, you know, um, it's it's been great having you on the platform, um, about the online. I'm um, been inspired from No Limit, and if there wasn't, um. You know, your work within no limit, maybe no limit wouldn't have been to no limit what it was too at the same time. So um, uh, you know, we owe a lot of our our um success and our development to yourself and stuff too, you know, because you're a huge part. So uh just wanna put that out there. You.
1: Thank you very much. I appreciate you so much and be safe over there in the UK, man. Thank you.
0: All uh, right, much love, man. So um family, we're gonna cut this one right now. Peace to everybody, stay safe, stay woke. And always look out for you folks. Peace.